one of the first things that Jesus says to them that they need to understand, the way that they need to, li- need to live their life is this, that he says, first and foremost, make sure that no one leads you astray. Make sure that you are not fooled by false prophets. What kind of false prophets? And when he, he starts talking about the kind of false prophets that claim that they are the Christ or they are the Messiah. They are the one, they are Jesus themselves, the ones that they need to follow. And that has happened historically and, and will happen and is happening all the time. Listen to his, the words of Jesus. And in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the close of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Do you see that? Don't let anyone fool you. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Do you see that? People claiming to be Jesus, claiming to be the Christ. And they will lead, now check this out, according to Jesus, they will lead many astray. Now that seems crazy. And as a pastor, as I look at you and those of you I know, I I think, wow, that sounds absurd. Jesus says it. Now, people get fooled all the time. I mean, you can tell on Saturdays or whatever days you have people knocking on your door, right, with a different kind of gospel or people wearing a particular kind of white uniform with a badge on the left side. I mean, so you know that there are different gospels out there and people are being fooled by all kinds of different ideas and um, it's out there. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. Notice that Jesus says not to be alarmed. Now, doesn't that sound really difficult? Wars and rumors of wars. And yet the theme of Scripture constantly is trust your God. Don't fear man, but fear God. Over and over, Jesus says, don't be afraid. And first and foremost, what he is telling his people, but above all, don't be duped by false teachers. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Now, as I read further, you will see evidence of something that takes place historically that we can have the convenience of looking back on that happened around, around A.D. 70. Now, I, I wanna, I wanna, there's two things I, wanna, I want us to understand in terms of persecution of the church. Possibly, well, three. Well, first of all, historically, because we have the convenience of looking back at what happened around A.D. 70, we know that, that Jerusalem was sacked, that the temple was demolished, all kinds of chaotic, crazy things had taken place. And people were, the Christians, the people of God were persecuted horrifically. In fact, when you look at the book of Acts, what do you see? Well, you see a lot of things. You see the gospel going out among all kinds of people. And you see um, uh, the fire being turned up and more and more and more persecution happening among God's people. I mean, Paul the apostle is proclaiming the gospel and he's drug out of cities, beaten. Uh, The Christians were being worked over. But check this out. 
Now, there's a lot of people that they, they want to talk about, they, wanna, they really wrestle with when this, these terrible things, that there's going to be like a, a tribulation where, where the fire is going to be turned up so horrifically and terribly um, that that will be this major sign of, what, what, of Jesus' return. And, and I would hold it lightly and say, yes. However, at the same time, hasn't persecution and tribulation been occurring from the time Jesus spoke about this to our very present? Now, I cannot cite it precisely, so I, wa I want you just to hear this, but I know that I haven't finished my research on, but I have read this. I've read this, and I find it very fascinating that it was argued um, in a couple different sources that in the, over the last hundred years that the, wor the worst Christian persecution that's taken place compared to, comparatively to all Christian history, the worst persecution of the church has happened in the last hundred years. That's just a reality. Now, why is that? Well, because there's more Christians worldwide than there ever has been before. Lots and lots and lots of horrific persecution has taken place. That's just a, a fact of those that we know about. And so, but, but the question becomes, well, what are, what are we to do with this? Well, Jesus, first and foremost, is saying, look, the heat is going to be turned up. And all kinds of trials and tribulations and things that would cause the church to be afraid Jesus is saying, hey, don't be afraid, but of all, don't be duped by false teachers, false prophets saying and claiming that they are the Christ. Now, I don't think that you and I, I don't think, like I said earlier, I don't think you're going to be duped by someone saying that they're the Christ. Seems crazy, right? That wouldn't happen to any of us. But I think that we can be duped in a lot of other ways. We can be deceived in a lot of other ways, which we can see in the text. How is that? Well, one of the primary ways that we can be deceived is to buy into, we could cave into our, our own sinfulness and our own idolatry and our own selfishness. And what that would mean is that we would do things and bring harm to, God forbid, toward one another. And listen to Jesus' words as he describes the difficulty that comes toward the church and how the people of God can and do and will do. Then, in verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then, check this out, many will fall away and betray one another. Do you see that? And hate one another. That's horrible. The people of God, or at least possibly those that are in the midst of the people of God, show themselves perhaps not to be the true people of God, but also know this, that true Christians can make some really terrible mistakes and even betray each other and even hate one another. God forbid, but it's true. And Jesus' words are that like, the heat will be turned on, persecutions come, Christians are delivered over to be killed. Christians are being hated by the nations, by people. And, and we know just from observation, and as we talk to people around us and you listen to what's going on just globally, um, Christianity is not necessarily perceived as the most desired thing by all people. I mean, certainly Christianity is growing, but there are certainly groups of people that have a lot of hostility toward Christianity. Isn't it not true? 
And he says, well, when this fire is turned up and persecution has happened, that God forbid, but this does happen, that many will fall away and betray one another. Um, in a book by Tim Keller, I just, I just finished, he, he, he did some research on a guy named Langdon Gilkey. Now, I didn't know who Langdon Gilkey was. But Langdon Gilkey was a guy who was born around the turn of the century, the other century, not the most recent, and was educated among um, secular humanists, they were just, but they were wealthy, they were highly educated, and he ended up having the most, um, the highest educa education and ended up graduated, I think it was magna or summa cum laude from Harvard. So he was a really sharp guy, he had a lot of privilege, and he really believed in his secular humanism. So I'm going I'm to define it the best I can, but no, I'm, I'm actually not, I, I want to be fair to them, but for the most part, if someone is um, like a secular humanist, they believe in a couple of major things, I would say, and there might be some other pieces that I could be admitting, but these are really kind of at the heart, the way, as, as far as I can see it. Number one, they believe that, uh, that education above all can cure everything. That rationale, that, that people are rational. And so if they're just informed, then they, if they have that tool, then they can be really decent people. Because the second assumption is this, is that not only are people super rational, but they're also really, really good. People have this, uh, that are, people are really good and people are really, really rational. And so because they're really innately good and because they're super rational, because, um, then therefore, they, if you just have the right information, everything's going to be fine. So as, as Keller talks about his, his story, this guy um, Langdon Gilkey ends up in, in China um, during some different wars. Japan invades China, and the Westerners are put into a camp. And now, now Gilkey writes about his experience in this camp. Now, and he, t he paints a picture of, of 2,000 people put on about, about two acres of property. Now, I want you to envision this, this property here that we're on is... is three and a half acres or something, so a little, a little less than half. Imagine 2,000 people in a, in a piece of property smaller than this with, as he describes it, 20 toilets um, that did not flush, by the way, very small living quarters. Uh, food was very, very scarce, and it was a very terrible place of intense pressure and, and difficulty. However, so he comes in with his assumptions that people are really, really good, and they're really, really rational. And so if you just have the, the right arguments, they will do the right thing. This is what, those are his first initial uh, thoughts about the whole matter. And he says at first, you know, his, his ideas were actually proven to be true, at least from what he could see as he experienced this, this camp. One was that people organized a healthcare system and tried to help each other, and those who could cook could cook, and, and they, made, they manufactured some ovens, and they were creative, and they did all these things. They tried to space things out together with living quarters and share, although privacy wasn't available, and on and on and on. And things seemed to be working pretty good. But then things would happen, and people started being awful to each other. And what he discovered is that people ultimately were most interested in their, only in their personal interests and not the interests of others. It shattered his worldview. He thought, no, people deep down really just want to care about others. But as he observed, he said over and over again, he saw that the opposite was true, and he just didn't have an answer for it. How could this be? Because it wrecked everything that he knew about his secular humanism. 
He gives an example where, where guys, there's a group of guys of about nine in one cell and another group of 11 in the other. And he thinks if I just appeal to them and help them understand that if we moved one over, there would be a, a better sense of fairness and we would be able to kind of kind of deal with all the issues we would face more, more appropriately and space would work out better and all those sorts of things. And he met with, he, he recounts the time when he met with these people of 11 and he describes it and he, he makes his case and he's, he's magna cum laude from Harvard. He makes great arguments and presentations. That, I mean, his thoughts are just precise. You cannot get, you cannot beat his arguments. And he said people, you know, tried to engage him a little bit, but ultimately what it came down to it was them saying, well, we're bigger and stronger, and if you try to impose that on us, there's going to be a problem. So here he is, believing that people would do the right thing if they had the right information because they are good from his perspective. But here's the observation that broke my heart, but I also know that it's true. He observed that not only were they selfish, but he said, but even the Christians were selfish. And the clergy were selfish. And he said sometimes they were the worst because they would have arguments of uprightness to support their position of selfishness. One of the things this shows us is that, you know what? Hey, Christians can make mistakes too. And even Christians can be self-centered. And we know that Jesus calls us to not do that. That God calls us not to betray each other. And yet we face those temptations. Jesus is telling his people, hey, look, I'm telling you in advance that these things will occur and it'll be very, very difficult and very, very and painful. And we know by the Spirit's help and by a changed heart that, you, you know what, we can actually, we can serve God the best we can, but we're, we're going to make mistakes. Now, there's more to that story that I'll, that I'll give you later because there's more that his, his whole world of Christianity gets turned upside down by a guy named Eric Little, and I'll tell you more about that later. But when, G, but when, when, but when he comes face to face with this, he sees when, when all the heat is turned up and the pressures of on, are on, he sees that everyone across the board seems to be really selfish. Jesus says, and all these, verse 8, all these are but the beginnings of birth pains, all this intensity, all this suffering, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. He'll go on. Jesus is telling them, above all, just don't be fooled by the false prophets. They are going to, we, they, we're going to be tempted in so many different ways. You know, there's three major categories to think of when it, when it comes to, like, our sinfulness and the idolatry around us and the temptations that come. There's the whole sex category, power, and money. These are three basic categories where, it is, where we run into the major temptations of these types of issues. Sex, power, and money. So I ask us, people of God, if we want to say in our hearts, man, may it not be, may we persevere because God will persevere us, and he will. 
Jesus will persevere you. His elect will persevere, brothers and sisters. Jesus says that his gospel will go to the ends of the earth and that those who endure, will, they will endure to the end. And if you are his, if you are among his people, you will endure, even though there are times when you will make mistakes. But Jesus will be with you. And he tells us, don't make the mistake of caving in to these things. So how do we, how do, we do that? Now, in our hearts, we say, hey, look, that may it never be. May we never be the people that betray each other. But I ask you, what happens when you are faced with a trial where the heat gets turned up just a little bit? I mean, like, like think of it this way. Just the other night, I was, uh, I was observing my son in, in a line to pay for something. I'm at, we're at the store. And as, we're, as, I, as he's in line, he's like in the middle of the line, um, I'm going to, I feel this awkwardness because I need to go get in line with him to pay, but there's this awkward feeling that I have, this sensation of injustice that people might feel toward me. And that is others that are further along the line might see me and think that I'm cutting in the line. You ever had that feeling? Have you ever been in a line where you're sitting there you're, and you're about to pay for stuff in the grocery store and all of a sudden you, you see someone kind of cut into the line because their spouse is waiting and they've got like a mountain of things. The first thought in your mind, or at least in my mind, is not, oh man, good for them, they're going to be able to take care of this. It is, man, why are you cutting in front of us? Now here is just a little bitty example of a, of a little bitty injustice. I mean, is it even fair to call it an injustice? But there's something innate, there's something that's a part of us where, where, where we struggle with that. And, and my question to me is, when they, what is my magic button? What heat, what tribulation would come my way to where I would cave in and just say something terrible to that person in that line? Or worst of all, betray my fellow Christian brother? How about in the workplace? In the workplace, perhaps you're working along someone else and they're not cutting it. They're not pulling their weight. Do you think to yourself, you know what, if I just tell my boss... I can elevate myself and kind of get to the next position. Now, it's messy because when you're working with other people, they really need to kind of, they need to pull it together. Like if you're handling like 100 jobs and they, they barely handle one, like it, it's not fair, right? The whole issue of justice and justice with us. But like, but what do we do with that when, it fa- when, when we're faced with it? Do we think, is there a way that I could advance myself in this situation? The, uh, and I, I, I say that just as an example to say, hey, aren't there ways in which we, we see certain injustices or we see certain things that don't seem fair? And are, are we more interested in our self-interest or are we, like Jesus, interested in the interest of others? And I got to tell you, for me, that I struggle with the other way. But Jesus tells us, even when the difficulties come, when, te- when all these temptations that, that would come from persecutions— that we are to not be led astray by false teachers. We could, be, we could be led astray by the idolatries that are in our ho- hearts, our desires to self-elevate ourselves, but we could also be led astray by all kinds of ideas that are in the culture around us, couldn't we? It could be views of sexuality. It could be cultural views of power. It could be cultural views of money. And how dare anyone, if they touch any one of those three. Would we kill over them? Jesus says that there are some that will betray each other. 
Now, before I lift us out of this, this, this despair, I'm going to go further. Now, here's the, So first and foremost, Jesus says, do not, be, do not be fooled by these false teachers. Secondly, he says, although there will be many that will fool other Christians that know this, that the answer to the question of when Jesus was coming will be radically obvious. Listen to the text. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, or, or woe, some of your translations might say that, woe for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. What Jesus is getting at is like when the, all this, when stuff gets really bad, there is a time to flee and not go back for whatever you need at your home. Now what we know, what we have the benefit of knowing looking back is 8070, like it was sacked and people were running for the hills and all this chaos was taking place and they were fleeing for their lives. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. What he's saying is, in the winter, it'd be a really difficult time to try to run for your life. And what he's saying is, if you're historically Jewish and you're trying to work out your Sabbath duties, it would be difficult to make a run for it, which this audience would really understand. For then they will be, there will be great tribulation. Such has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be again never will be. There is one of the first problem verses. Now I say problem because it is a problem for us. It's not a problem for God. But one of the difficulties is just dealing with the whole issue of when this takes place. It will never be again. Remember, Jesus is seeing this from a bigger vantage point. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now remember, what we're getting to is the fact that Jesus' coming will be obvious. Listen to the text. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and, and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Do you see this? He's telling his people beforehand. Where we're getting a warning beforehand. When we face persecutions, when someone's claiming to be the Christ, or there's a possibility of being duped by some crazy, weird, false teaching, not to be fooled by it, and understand that what's behind, th these are, this is what's most important, and what's behind the questions that you're asking. When will I return, and when will this be demolished? Jesus is saying, It'll be painfully obvious. Listen to it as he goes on. See, I have told you from beforehand. So if, so if they say to you, look here in the wilderness, do not go out there. If they say, look, he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures gather. In other words, when you see big condors flying around in the air, Condors are California way of saying ugly bird vulture, by the way. It, that's all it means. It's just a bigger version of vulture. Vultures, when they're circling around a corpse, you know that there's something dead there. When they're circling, you know something's going on. They think something's dead. Jesus is saying it will be visible and it will be obvious. That's what Jesus is saying. That is, it'll be like lightning. It's just like sudden and awesome and happens. 
Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes, let me, let me pause. Now look, I just want to address the fact again, like d depending on where you're coming from with your, your view of, of, of the end, I, I want you to understand that there's going to be people in this room that have different views of the order of those events. Those events. I'm going to tell you where I'm coming from as a pastor and where I've come from historically. My, my short answer of where I've been historically would be what you call a um, historic pre-millennial view, but um, I, I don't really hold, I don't hold that view anymore. I'm coming from more of an amillennial perspective. Um, as I look at the passage, I see that the Christ will return. But I want you to know that you can hold a, a different eschatological perspective and be a Christian, first of all, and, and be at branches. But you got to know, like from the pulpit, you're going to hear a perspective that says Christ is going to return and that Christ is reigning now from the throne. And his gospel is going out. Not all perspectives hold that position, but what I'm saying is the, the return of Christ will be obvious. Um, the whole idea of a, of a secret rapture is not where I'm coming from. So if you want to read Tim LaHaye books and write a lot of charts, you just got to understand, like, that's not going to be the perspective you're going to hear from me. And I've got reasons why, which I will not unpack this morning. But I will say this, Jesus will return in his glory. Listen to what it says. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So number, number, number one, we, we see this, that Jesus says, hey, first and foremost, don't be deceived by any false prophet. If they claim to be me, they are not me. Secondly, the return of, the, of Jesus will be obvious. Third, um, you will either be glad that he comes or you will mourn his coming. Those that are glad that he comes are those that are his people. If you are a Christian, you will be glad. But if you are mourning, it is because you have been denying him and don't believe him as the Christ. Jesus says that when he returns, the nations will mourn. Do you want to know why? Because that's the end. That's why. When Jesus returns, that is the end. He will come and he will take care of business. Now as we unpack the passage, we will actually see that reality unfold itself before our eyes. Jesus will come in his glory. Son of man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And for those of us who know him and love him, it will be a wonderful and beautiful day to see Jesus to see King Jesus right before our eyes. I don't know what that's going to look like. And the passage tells us that we don't know when he's going to show up. But I can tell you this, it'll be obvious, we're going to know it, and we're going to see it somehow. I don't know how that plays out, but Jesus is coming. Right now, what's important is that we not get fooled by all kinds of crazy false doctrine out there and false teachers that, that claim to be Jesus when they're not. We need to look to the Son of God because well, he's saying when he, he, his coming will be obvious. And thirdly, those that do not embrace him will mourn with all the nations. You see what he says? You see all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect 
from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. You know, see, see as, I have, as I study this, the perspective I'm taking it from a more reformed perspective is the perspective of, of God coming, showing up, and gathering his elect, and, that, and that's the end. And then, it's, and then it's new heaven, new earth, and judgment. Listen to what Jesus says. He goes on to, to describe this timing. He's like, look, look at the fig tree. From the fig tree, we learn its lesson. As soon as the branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that, that, that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And I'm just going to tip you off again. Those two verses are another place where it becomes very difficult in understanding the passage. Because you think things like, is he talking to them? Is it to us? And the timing? And then, but remember, Jesus is giving big picture. He's talking about this terrible, this, this pain and tri- tribulation that's coming toward the church. And we know historically, we know by reading the Acts that all kinds of tribulations have been taking place of all kinds. And will it be worse? I imagine so. I imagine so. I don't uh, p- foresee things getting easier for those who follow Jesus. But I do know this, that Jesus will return and he will come in his glory. And you will either be glad for his coming or you will be mourning his coming. Why is that? Well, the next section will tell us why. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, I realize that when you hear this, it might be a difficult thing to grasp. But you want to know why? Because it is. How is it that the Son of God can say these words, and Matthew would pen them, uh, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, that the Son doesn't know when. How does that occur, being Jesus, who, as the second person of the Trinity, is eternal, uncreated, one with the Father, how does he not know? So I'm going to give you a short answer to understanding this, this difficult, complex thing that's still just going to rock your mind. And guess what? It should. There should be a layer of mystery to understanding this. So historically, the way theologians have looked at this, this complicated thing, this, these themes in Scripture where we see Jesus, first of all, taking on flesh, and Jesus dying a real death, and yet at the same time, Jesus is fully God. And Jesus can sustain the universe and yet not know this. What theologians have said is that within the person of Jesus, there's two natures. His humanity and his divine. And it's a great mystery in how, how God works that out. And I would, I would say to you, as a fellow Christian and pastor, to let there be tension. To be careful in seeking out the perfect understanding. Although you have to be careful because you go one side and be, become a heretic. Like they're called Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and all these other groups that actually deny the deity of Jesus. They overemphasize his humanity and they totally miss out on what the, how the scriptures tell us about who Jesus is. And you go the other way and then you have a Jesus who can't die on the cross and pay for our sins. Yeah, we have a Jesus who came and died on the cross for our sins. So 
what, the, what historic theologians have, have argued as we look at passages like this, where these, where these difficulties come, is to just to, to see Jesus, the, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, with two natures, fully God, fully man. So here Jesus says that he doesn't know, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, listen to what he says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The point that Matthew is making, the point that Jesus is making, that his return will come when people are not ready. And he's telling his people that we are to live in such a way that we are ready. What he's saying is that we need to be awake. So number one, he says, do not be led astray. Number two, his coming, his coming will be obvious. Number three, you will be glad or you will mourn. People of God, you will be glad. If you are here today and you do not know him, we want you to know him. Because right now, you will mourn his coming. Number four, Jesus says to be awake. What does it mean to be awake? Listen to the text and I'll, tell, I'll unfold, unpack that. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What that means is they came, when, when God showed up and, and, uh, and caused this rain, to, the flood, when they didn't expect it. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Now remember, read this in light of what he's just described. What happened in the time of Noah? A household went into the shelter of the ark, and the others said, you're crazy, and denied God, and they were taken up. They were swept away. He says, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, he says, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord coming. That's what Jesus says. You don't know when he's coming. What, now, now, there's different approaches that people have taken on looking at the swept away. There's two different views. But either perspective you take, I, I, will, uh, I will tell you, they, they both work out. Because there's a group that's with the Lord and there's a group that is not with the Lord. Now, some have argued, look, based on what you see with going on with Noah here and the ark, there are those that went into the shelter and were rescued and saved. And the others were taken up. They were swept up with the flood. And some have argued that when, when Jesus says this, he's saying one was left behind, not because they're left for judgment, but the ones being taken are being taken to judgment. Some have argued that. And some have argued the opposite, um, that those that are left behind are those being left for judgment, and the others are being taken, taken up to meet up with the Lord. Now, I will say this, the scriptures make clear that, that we will, there was this, there's the final trumpet and there's this, the, there's the gathering of the elect. Uh, so I don't know what that looks like. So apparently there's the gathering of the elect of God and we will be with him and, and, and he with us. And so, and there will be those that will be separated from God from ever, forever and judgment. So either perspective, there's one group that will be left out because of their denying of Jesus and those that will be taken up to him or with him, uh, you could land on either side and you could be safe. But the point is this. Therefore, because you do not know when he will come, you are to be awake. And this is what he goes on to say. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The point, the bell that Jesus is ringing is that you must stay awake, O man or woman of God. Who then is the faithful wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. In other words, in other words what Jesus is saying, those that are awake should be found doing what they ought to be doing. The point that Jesus is driving home is that we are not to be duped by false teachers, that he will return, and it's going to be obvious that there are those that will be glad to see him and those that are going to be mourning to see him. And the ones that will see him are those that persevere by his persevering work. They need to and ought to be awake. And therefore, what, what does it mean to be awake? It mean, being awake means to be doing what you ought to be doing. Now, will Christians mess up? Will Christians be self-centered? Is it, you know, I, when, you know, when you watch some of those old, like, Christian movies that were really terrible, by the way, you know, those, like, left-behind movies and things like that, there's, like, this, always this fear that was caused by them where, you know, maybe you would do something that you shouldn't have done right when the moment when Jesus showed up, and then, man, you went to hell. That was sort of the, the picture that was painted. What I'm telling you is, like, man, you are covered by the grace of God. Repent of sin. Repent of sin. And Jesus is clearly saying, be awake. Be caught doing what you ought to be doing. Don't go out carousing and be a drunkard and, and live a, light, a life of license thinking my Lord is delaying. That is wicked. That is wicked and evil. Don't go look at things you shouldn't look at. Don't go do things you should not be doing, brothers and sisters. And I'm not saying try harder and then God will save you. I am saying that prove yourself to be a Christian by staying awake and alert, doing what you are called to do before your God. Jesus says, therefore, so who then is the faithful in verse 45? The wise servant whom his master has set over his household, right? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. All kinds of blessing that comes from it. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards, and his master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect, and on an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in a place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is saying to stay awake. There's a, um, now, now, now some of you here might struggle not with justice, but maybe there might be a slight misunderstanding or struggle with the idea of God actually sentencing, sentencing someone to judgment because they do not know him. We totally preach that hell exists and hell is real. But some have struggled, especially in our own day, with the existence of, of hell. And I, and I want to just, I want to tell, I want to, I want to reason with you for a moment why that is. Now, if you, um, some of you won't, would not, most of you here would not remember this, but in the early 80s, when I was a kid, there was um, a woman in Australia who was accused of killing her baby. 
Um, and here's how the story unfolded in the news. So she and her family were in Australia, and they, they, were, they had a, um, a very young baby, under one year years old. And they were camping and hanging out with other people in the camp, and all of a, and all of a sudden there was some crazy sound or whatever, and people, people said, and she, the mother went to the tent, and she started screaming, you know, help, help, bring a flashlight, and her, her baby, she was saying, claiming that her baby was taken by a dingo. Now, in Australia, in different parts, I'm not, I'm not a native to Australia, so I don't really know. Apparently, one of the big problems they have is it's not coyotes, but it's dingoes. It's a big dog uh, that's, um, that's a little different than a dog. It's a very, it, I think it can be pretty aggressive. And so, so the news got a hold of this, and they were claiming that, no, 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 a dingo didn't get the baby, that this was a part of the plan of the mother and the father to get rid of the baby. And so they claimed that they killed their own baby and that they fabricated a story about the dingo. And what happened was this went out into the news, and then you had this mother who got imprisoned and thrown and, um, for the murder of her baby. And then I don't know if her husband served some time, but they both were, he was like, you know, he was guilty for an, as being an accessory, but they both had to deal with this whole big problem. Peep, within weeks of all this going out and them having this ruling on them, they were thrown in prison, and she was thrown in prison. People were just wanting her head. People wanted her to be judged. They were angry. They were calling her baby killer and all this stuff. And for you hearing the story about the idea of a, of a mother killing her baby, there's a massive amount of injustice that hits our hearts when we think, man, if it's true, if this couple killed their child, what an evil injustice. And the whole crowd is chanting for justice. What I want to point out is that there's this, there's this, there's this reality in our hearts where we long for justice. If someone kills a baby, we want them to get the sentence that they deserve. Now, as the story turns out, um, the whole thing was fabricated, not from, their pers- not from them, but there were other political forces at hand that wanted to, didn't want the fear to go into the hearts and minds of the public of the dingoes, because what was going on in reality was a massive dingo problem. People were being trained, don't feed the dingoes. The dingoes became hungry and therefore more aggressive, and then they attacked and they took this baby. And people were willing to lie politically to say that they murdered their baby when the reality was this was a mother that was unjustly thrown into prison and accused of killing her child. When I heard that story, I thought, dude, the injustice of accusing these people of killing their baby and then throwing them into prison over it is horrendous. The injustice of these people chanting in the front of the building, wherever they're being judged, you know, kill them, throw them in prison, baby killer, when it's completely false, is absolutely horrendous. The injustice bothers us. When all the evidence was looked at and weighed, we find out they did not. They had witnesses that were at the camp with them that they didn't even know. Like, it was really clear the baby was killed, unfortunately, by this, by a wild animal. And they were unjustly thrown into prisoner. They were finally pardoned by the whole thing, but it took a few years. There's, I say that to say this, 
that there is, there is something in us that God has hardwired for a need for justice. And I tell you this, that when you see a text like this that tells us, informs us, that God will justly judge those who deny him, I want you to know that if we have any inkling and sense and need for justice, how much more does the God of the universe provide a fair and just justice? God is just when our justice is imperfect. Jesus says this, the master of the servant will come to come on a day when he does not expect in him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You need to know this, that God is just in do, doing this. But for us who are in Christ, brothers and sisters, who deserved this sentence, we do not receive that deserved sentence because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Trust in Jesus, and his coming will be glorious and beautiful. Deny Jesus, and it will be a day of warning. Brothers and sisters, let's pray.